You're listening to The Live Drop. My guest is Baron von Koska. He's the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin, the co-author of City of Spies, along with journalist Sven Felix Kellerhoff. For almost half a century, from the summer of 45 until 1990, NATO and the Warsaw Pact fought an ongoing duel in the dark. Espionage was a part of everyday life in both East and West Berlin with spies of numerous nationalities and loyalties. Barrett describes the highlights of his book and intelligence activities in Berlin, the successes, failures, famous and the infamous to include the crash of the Yak-28P, the spy tunnel, Meister and James Hall, James Carney, the visit from Marcus Wolf, the Benno Onis shooting, Dean Reed, the Rosenholtz files, and of course the Berlin Airlift. My parents a Berliner, no stranger to the spy world. Aside from his work at the museum, he's written his own spy novel and recently helped produce Spy City on AMC with William Boyd. Begin transmission. You got a quote by William Boyd. That's awesome. Yes. And that's basically the reason why this book is in English. Uh, you know, I worked together with William Boyd on this uh, spy series, uh, Spy City, uh, which is in America on AMC+. Plus. Right. And uh, so we worked together for at least a year, one and a half uh, on those six episodes. And they are finally ready and on, on the screen on the telly now. Yeah, and that was uh, the reason. Uh, and I sent him my book and said, I'm sorry, it's only in Hungarian and Swedish and, and in German. And he said, why isn't it in English? And I said, well, I don't have an English editor. And I said, he, and he said, well, I'm in the business for 40 years. Shall I open some doors? And I said, uh, yes, please. <laughs> and so it came that my uh, cooperation with uh, Casemates uh, was uh, due to William's help. Uh, and the book is out now, yeah. Oh, that's great. What year does that what does that series take place? It's taking place in, in West Berlin. And the main protagonist is a British uh, diplomat. But he is not a diplomat. He is actually uh, an intelligence guy. And he killed somebody. And he had to come back because there's a mole in West Berlin. And he's right. going back and forth, East Berlin, West Berlin, finding the mole. And uh, in the last episode, the wall was built here. Yeah. Oh, oh! So it's around late fifties. Takes place uh, in late fifties. Yeah, late fifties and the last episode. Yeah, sixty-one. Yeah. Oh, so it's the actual crisis is the end. Are they getting us another season? Well, we have a, a rough idea for the second season. It will be a planned uh, assassination of Kennedy when he's visiting Berlin, mm-hmm. which is a nice idea. But I'm a rookie in the film business. But uh, my impression is when the first series was shown in i think in, in uh, on german tv magenta first then it was sold to america where it was uh, shown in late summer then it was on public television zdf uh, in uh, just uh, in november now it's on british television i think if if that takes so long it's very hard to decide if you want to have a second season before the f- yeah. because the first season is is you know the the, f- the filming was done nearly two years ago yeah, to get all the actors back together again is going yeah. to be difficult. But congratulations, though. That's that's wonderful that it you know that it's made. It's on the air. You've got a book going now. You know, there's yeah. a lot of lot of lot of things going on. Yesterday, I was in the German Spy Museum at Potsdamer Platz. Oh yeah, how did that go? Had a very nice meeting there uh, with uh, a Zeitzeuge. He was a Berlin Feuerwehr a fire department diver. And mm-hmm. he was one of the first uh, people in the water when the Russian plane crashed down in the Stürzensee in 1966. Oh, the yak. Yeah. So a Russian yak uh, crashed down there and he was one of the first uh, guys in the water uh, because there were no British seals or uh, divers. They came 
day later from Portsmouth. And so the, the German Feuerwehr divers were the first ones. And he was there. He's, he's 84. He was in, in, a cr in incredible good shape, physically and, and mentally uh, brilliant shape. And also a lady was there, a specialist for, for Russia. And she had contact to the family of the two um, pilots who died. And next year, there will be a monument will be erected in Russia. Uh, and uh, official uh, organization gave uh, 250,000 euros so that those two Cold War heroes will receive their own monument in Russia next year. Mm -hmm. So that is another hint that uh, in Russia nowadays, they are looking back uh, into Cold War years and trying to find their own heroes. All right. uh, so that was a very nice uh, evening. And we three were on the podium and uh, crowd was okay. That's, that was good. Yeah. So that was that was what year? That plane crash in the... That's uh, in the where um, it's a part of uh, um, military missions in the last chapter, and it's called the Big Fish on the Line. 1960s, April of 66. Mm -hmm. is when it mm -hmm. crashed. Yeah, you cover that in your book as well. I know you are, you also talked about that with with Ian on his podcast, Cold yeah. War Conversations in Depth. Yeah, but after speaking with that uh, Feuerwehr, uh, <laughs> Feuerwehr, not Amtor, <laughs> he was, but did he uh, did he. Did they find the body in the plane when he went down? Well, uh, he, he explained it. I was uh, I had wrong uh, ideas how that worked. In my so just to clarify, this is a Russian plane that crashed in not the Vanze. It was the other lake. What was it? Stursensee. It's a lake. Stursensee. Yeah. Are we recording that already? Yes. Yes. To be honest, there was one information that was new to me. I thought they were exclusively looking for the dead pilots on the first or second day. And uh, they the first thing they would do just uh, to get them out of the water. But uh, yesterday I learned uh, that the cockpit was so stuck and destroyed so deeply on the ground of the Stößensee that they had to lift the whole the rest of the, they had to lift the whole plane including the cockpit and the fire uh, firefighter said that uh, when they lifted the cockpit you could only see not real bodies they were, they were wearing those uh, pilot suits and it was just one undefined mass so it's it's uh, it's a piece it's a piece of body and uh, a lot of in one case a lot of butt uh, was coming out uh, when they lifted uh, the cockpit so uh, 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 for me it is it was new that they lifted the cockpit including the two dead pilots uh, two days after the plane crashed down i had in mind Uh, that the pilots were rescued or the dead bodies were rescued out of water earlier and in, in, in a single activity, but it was done together with the, the rest of the plane. Yeah, that was new to me. Right. Well, that, they were heroes. I mean, they they crashed in the. They made a choice to crash in the sea as opposed to exactly. There's a living uh, living area. Well, a couple of hundred meters away from uh, the spot they they crashed in. The lady who is in contact with the family in Russia had a, had an, uh, a couple of interesting points. For example, the uh, Orden, the banner uh, they received, is uh, not a banner you would give to a hero. And uh, the reason for that is even though their behavior when the plane crashed was obviously heroic, but 
the damage they did by crashing the plane to the Soviet Union. That didn't make them heroes. Oh, right, uh, there were right. two major points where uh, they did the damage. Uh, first, it was the radar system that was in the Yak-28P. And the Yak-28P was brand new in East Germany. It was just possible for the American uh, liaison mission to take a photo, a photo in the air two weeks ago. That's as far as they got close to a Yak-28P taking a photo in the air. And now it's in the lake in the British sector in the Stürzensee and they could do everything they wanted to do with it. So even though they had a, a couple of uh, Soviet um, soldiers uh, on the side, they had their own camp uh, with about 40 men, Soviet soldiers and officers and generals in a camp nearby the Stürzensee uh, looking at everything uh, that's going on. But They couldn't do anything against it. You know, uh, their plane was in the sea. It's in the British territory. And then the British were rescuing the radar system. It's called Oriol D and was a, a strongest radar system they had at the time in this Yak uh, 28P. And also uh, they discovered uh, the friend to foe interface, which was probably the biggest damage they did to the Soviet Union concerning this crash. Uh, so it was quite a, a bad day for the Soviet Union. And obviously, they were not happy about the crash. And I think that's the reason why the two pilots, the two dead pilots, only received, an, let's say, an average uh, order medal uh, and not, not the one for a hero. That's too bad. Your book explains it pretty well. I want to jump to the 80s people. Um, yeah, I mean, James Hall, he's out. He's, you know, he's free. He's a free man. He's out working as a contractor somewhere. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows where. What I, was, what I thought was interesting when I looked at that story about him, I mean, James Hall and, you know, 1982, he first started working for the Stasi. Then he was kind of working for the KGB at the same time. He was, his contact was like a Turkish, the Meister. I, I'd seen the guy before because I was stationed at Andrews Barracks and I knew right, right behind us was that one strip where they had the, the automobile um, repair section. So, but yeah, the Meister, Yildrim, I guess his name was. Yeah, Hussein Yildrim. Yeah, so Yildrim was kind of running him for the the Stasi. But I saw this picture in your book in 2004, Marcus Wolf and Yildrim were together in the Allied. Yeah. Were you there then or was that before your yeah. time? No, no, it was during my time. And indeed, uh, Marcus Wolf and uh, the Turkish uh, spy handler, I met for the very first time in person when Yildirim was released. He really uh, was sentenced to, I think, 30 years, a long time prison. Uh, but he was released early after 15 or 18 years, something. And he went back to Turkey over Berlin. And he made a stopover in Berlin. And we did an evening on that subject in the Allied Museum. And for the very first time, uh, by the way, Markus Wolf was at the museum. And the reason he came was to met his Turkish spy handler, Yildirim, in person. They they both never met before. Wow. Yeah, that's a nice photo. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty incredible. I mean, how do you, how did you organize that? That's kind of a that's kind of a well, the in invitation went out and the invitation went public. We did not invite uh, Marcus Wolf uh, in person, 
but uh, because but our museum is open to everybody and obviously it was in the newspaper that the spy from the Teufelsberg will be at the Allied Museum and uh, there was also a documentary uh, shown a week or two later and uh, the, the guy who did the documentary was there so we had a little podium and all of a sudden uh, there was uh, Markus Wolf in, in the audience and uh, later on they met and uh, obviously uh, Yildirim was also very pleased to meet him Oh, I can also back up some of your reporting here. You said that the Teufels that the um, Teufelsberg station was built on um, kind of shifting ground, which made some problems later with the foundation. But I worked with DEH, and one of my projects was replacing a drainage pipe underneath one of their patios because <laughs> because it had shifted. So I, I I can validate that for you that yeah, it definitely had some structural some structural issues up there. But coming back to the Yildirim story, uh, it's so amazing how that guy, he he really wanted it. You know, he approached himself. He went uh, two or three times to East Berlin into the Stasi uh, headquarter and, and asked uh, if he could work as an informant or as a spy. And they were actually fed up with him because uh, he was of no use. Yeah. So uh, the second or the third time they sent him home and said, please don't come again. <laughs> <laughs> in case uh, you have a job that is related uh, to the allies or you know someone important or whatsoever and uh, obviously they thought they would never see him again but uh, the opposite was the case uh, he applied for this car repair shop uh, at the uh, american forces And that's how he met James Hall. Uh, then, uh, obviously, uh, he was uh, high-ranked by the Stasi as well because uh, he was the handler of uh, James Hall then. But uh, to see how this guy really was desperately uh, hoping uh, to be an informant or to be a spy when uh, going to East Germany so often and applying uh, without success, And now finally, uh, he was a guy uh, who was able to organize all the documents from Teufelsberg. Yeah, he would have been successful in the gig economy. He had like a nice, nice, as a spy, it was, it was a lucrative side gig for him. But was that, was it um, Hall, but was, didn't Hall kind of, wasn't he a walk-in first with the Stasi and then they connected him to the Meister uh, or was it the other way around? The other way around. Hall uh, applied himself by Hall applied for a KGB job himself. That right. was only a couple of weeks or only a few months before he met, uh, accidentally, uh, he met uh, Yildirim. And so oh. Hall applied, again, very simple. He went to East Berlin and put his application into the Soviet embassy uh, post box. Yeah, that's as simple as that. And, After it was obvious that he will work in the future for the KGB, then he totally accidentally um, met in the car repair shop with Yildirim. And then Yildirim uh, asked him, not directly, but if he needs um, a bit money by the side and uh, the situation and all that stuff. And obviously Hall being a spy anyway, was open to that. Mm -hmm. And then he worked for the Stasi at the same time for the KGB and the Stasi. And for nearly a year, the KGB was not aware that he was working for both intelligences. And after the KGB was aware that he was not only working for him, but also for the Stasi via the Turkish Meister, they said, uh, you have to decide. 
uh, either me or them. And then uh, Hall decided to quit with the KGB and to work exclusively for the Stasi uh, together with the Meister. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering where they exchanged that stuff. Was it down near, uh, I mean, you mentioned Ice Cal. That's where Carney did his kind of dead drops. That's where but, did, yeah. but, but where did, where did, where did um, Hall do his dead drops? Do you it's, know? Uh, he, it was quite easy. He, he uh, took out most of his papers in a, a spot bottle, in a, in a sports bag, which mm-hmm. has a double, um, double floor. That was very easy for him. And then it was the job of uh, Yildirim to copy all that stuff. In the first year, do two copies, one copy for the KGB, one copy for the Stasi. And then Yildirim negotiated a price for this document with the Stasi, not with the KGB. Yildirim was exclusively working for the Stasi. So he actually went with the documents to East Berlin put them on the table, and then he negotiated a price. And the Stasi document says they sometimes they sometimes felt like on a Turkish bazaar because, you know, <laughs> he was asking for a higher price. And, no, we can't give it. No, I wanted it, you know. So uh, that's the way Yildirim uh, negotiated the price for the Teufelsberg documents. He had to walk. He had to pretend he was walking away. Like, I know we don't want, I, I can't take this. All right, come back, come back, come back. All right, how much? <laughs> but but they they made some money off, and they exclusively did it for money, not for for anything else. Both were only uh, heading for money. Were there any others that weren't that weren't caught? <laughs> they I mean, were they're caught. suspected. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, there was there was Carney, there was Hall. I mean, I think there was yeah. The, we have this, other this British, British guy, other British guy, right? Yeah, he was not caught uh, when he was active. Uh, he was caught when he retired in uh, in uh, Great Britain, and the only reason why he was caught is because he was chasing minors, uh, little schoolgirls. Uh, so that's the reason why the police said hello to him. And when they were searching his home, they found quite a few, not only hints, but proof that he has uh, good connections uh, to the Soviet Union. And indeed, uh, that's the reason why they noticed he, he was working as a spy and then he confessed and he was doing that for many, many, many years. And as I said, just the fact that he, as a, as a retiree, was chasing uh, little schoolgirls, uh, that's the only reason why he was caught. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a couple of guys out there, <laughs> the old age, uh, who are not caught yet. Yeah, some of them out there. There was one guy I was never really too sure of, but um, he was uh, Hungarian and he worked in the copy the copy machine room at DEH, the director of engineering and housing over on Roosevelt. So I worked there my last year in Berlin. Every time you copied something, he had he had to be there. Like he wouldn't let you in that room alone. And I don't know if he had a, a particular um, you know security role or anything like that, but you could not be in that role without him in there. And he was really pedantic. I remember talking to him one time and I was like, how did you get to, how did you get to, um, uh, how did you come into coming to Berlin? He said, I came here in 19... 19- 56. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> I said, well, how did, during the Hungarian revolution, I said, how did you get here? He said, I flew a MiG <laughs> to Austria. <laughs> Come to find out he was a jet pilot. He flew a MiG to, to Austria and then, you know, went to, and went to Germany and then got a job in the, somehow got a job running the copy, copy machine at DEH. So. Well, that was his entrance card. Uh, it's a yeah. expensive entrance card, by the way. <laughs> a dangerous one. Yeah. Yeah, he said it just looked like an ex. He said they mismade made it look like an exercise when they flew over. They didn't act like they were drawing a straight beeline. They just acted like, oh, it's just a normal thing. And then 
over and landed in an airbase somewhere. So yeah, so it's exciting all those little stories that pop up in Germany. Any others? Any others that you've discovered recently? Well, my co-author is um, Sven Felix Kellerhoff. He's a German uh, journalist. And when he first, when we first published the book in two thousand and nine, the story of this Berlin policeman who shot uh, the student uh, Benno Ohnesorg was brand new, so we just could include it uh, with a handful of pages. He later wrote a whole book on, on that subject and went through thousands of, of archive material in, in, the, in the Stasi uh, archive. But uh, that was a story uh, that's also pretty incredible. You know, being a German uh, at my age, um, I'm uh, well over 50, and everybody knew uh, the students riots uh, in Germany and especially in Berlin and uh, one of the main reasons for these riots is because a policeman shot uh, a harmless student uh, called Benno Ohnesorg and there's an iconic photo in Germany where a female students is holding this dying uh, um, uh, student in her arms All right. and now after so many years and uh, as I said the policeman is well over his 80s when it came out it came out that the guy who, who shot the student was working for the Stasi and uh, for a long time. And again, he, again, himself, he applied in East Berlin, uh, offered his service to the Stasi and was a uh, fanatic with the weapons. And uh, then suddenly you have the idea, well, keeping in mind what that all did to the Federal Republic, uh, how these students revolts and protests in, in all uh, cities uh, were well remembered and and the reason for that is is a stasi informant who shot a harmless student you came to the conclusion well it could be could have been done on purpose uh, might be yeah the order of the stasi uh, to kill someone but that was not the case so the guy was just went over top and uh, in fact the stasi was not amused that uh, her agent or her informant is now in the spotlight and they they cut cut all the lines, uh, all connections with him after he did it. But uh, it was quite a shock for the Berliners and for the historians to learn that uh, the guy who shot the student in the 60s was actually uh, working for the Stasi. Wow. Yeah, I mean, somebody told me that the police had an awful lot of paraphernalia. The Berlin police had an awful lot of spy paraphernalia. Yeah. That, that they'd confiscated. They were like a, they were like a, they were like a, you know, a significant counterintelligence force. Yeah. The firefighter yesterday said as well, a colleague of him, they just blackmailed him. He, he also belonged uh, to the group of people that came, that fled from East Berlin to West Berlin in the fifties, especially 53 uh, to 60, 61 until the war was built. You know, more than 2 million people fled over Berlin out of the GDR, and he was one of them. Uh, but the result of this is that usually there's still a family in East Berlin. And in this case, and in a couple of other cases, uh, the Saudi just blackmailed those guys now settled and working in West Berlin and uh, threatened them that uh, something would happen to their family. They would have a bad life, In uh, they would lose their jobs, uh, and so on, and and usually that's very convincing. And if if you have the, if you are confronted with uh, that kind of blackmail, 
uh, a lot of people say yes uh, i'm i would try to get you some information whatsoever but leave my leave my family alone in, in east germany you talked about marine born and how they would interview i mean refugees coming across this is like in the 80s i mean usually it was people who were a little bit older so they didn't have to pay the um they didn't have to pay for the welfare of some of the elderly at least in the east so they would send them across but you mentioned how somebody like Carney was working on interviewing these people. And one thing they would do is they would say, they would ask them, do you live near a military base? Do you, exactly. do you, do you have relatives that live near there? And then they would try to get the relative's name and then try to contact them. I, it just seems sort of, sort of dangerous. For a very long time, since the 50s, that's exactly the method. And uh, I had a lady at the museum who was writing her memoirs. So she was very wealthy. So she hired a journalist uh, to write her memoirs and she was uh, at one uh, at our evening whatever was a film evening or lecture i can't remember so we usually have a glass of wine afterwards and the lady said oh, i'm writing my memoirs and me and my my uh, boyfriend we were swimming one week after the wall uh, went up we were swimming from east berlin to west berlin that was possible in the first days they were good swimmers and so on and then they said, and then we went to in this uh, refugee center and we were interviewed. And um, my boyfriend at the time, his parents had a bakery and they were supplying uh, the Russian barracks in, in, in the city. And then I said to the lady, well, then obviously your boyfriend had been asked if he did not want to go back to his Germany on the same day and work for uh, one of the Western agencies. And the lady looked at me in really big eyes and she said to me, how did you know? I never told that to anybody. And I said, like, dear lady, <laughs> I know because they did it with all the guys. <laughs> yeah, Actually, yeah. if they found someone who had uh, an interesting job and even if it was just bring, bring the bread into the Russian barracks, that's interesting enough. They were trying to persuade him to go back to the East Germ uh, to East Germany, hopefully on the same day, so no one would notice that we were leaving, and uh, then working for the Western intelligence. And I'm afraid that obviously worked in a couple, uh, uh, yeah, a couple of time. And uh, those poor guys who went back, I don't know what happened to them. That'd be a tough sell, wouldn't it? I mean, finally you made it to the West and they said, hey, I want you to go back. <laughs> I mean, it must have been financial or something, or I mean, we'll give you some money or we'll, we'll promise we'll get you out of there at some other point. But that, that's, that, would have been a, that would have been hard to persuade people to do that, I think. So when it was published in 2009, uh, we had a couple of uh, insights there at the time. But now, uh, 12 years later, I would say the book shifted to, to a first overall read if you want to get started with a subject. Mm -hmm. In there, you get a, a good overall view uh, what happened between 45 and 94 in Berlin, as well as on the Western part, as well as on the Eastern part. And uh, if you like the subject, then you can dig into uh, each and every single subject much deeper because uh, a couple of uh, special books, you mentioned Steve Fogel's book on the Berlin uh, Spy Tunnel and a couple of other books uh, that uh, were published in the last years. But uh, I consider our book uh, as, a, as a good start, as a good, as a good book to start. If you have no clue about Berlin and what happened there, I think that would be a good idea 
uh, to have that uh, as a as a start, and then you can uh, get deeper into the subject. Or in, you, you choose a subject, either the military missions, or um, the Berlin Spy Tunnel, or the Teufelsberg episode, and then you can do further reading. I was really happy that at the very end you talked about one of my favorite uh, episodes. I guess you'd call it is the Rosenholtz files. Yeah, and um, yeah, big question: Were the Russians involved, or, or was it straight from the Stasi? I think I, th you know, there are a lot of uh, different versions. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think first of all, uh, probably a lot of money was involved. <laughs> Not a lot of money concerning um, nowadays uh, understanding of a lot of money, but the guy who received it obviously uh, is a wealthy person now. But no, I think it was that uh, I think one guy on the Stasi side discovered that Cold War is over now that GDR is over now and that he still needs a future. Yeah. And uh, therefore, obviously, he, uh, yeah, he sold the stuff. So I, I will never forget, I was when I was 15 years ago, we were at the CIA uh, headquarter at the CIA Museum in Langley. And later on, we had a dinner uh, with a, a curator there and uh, with a couple of others from the headquarter. And the guy who was sitting next to me, who did not say a single word and i was just too young and to uh, blame it blame it on my age i was just too young at the time and the only question he had on the whole day when he was sitting next to me is if the fact that the americans had not handed back the rosenholz files to the german government at the time yet then when we met if that is still a subject in germany mm. Much later, uh, especially when I was writing a book, it was obvious that the guy, I was sitting next to a guy <laughs> who obviously knew much more about this operation than I, than I do. And, but at the time, I, I was just as stupid to ask uh, him. I don't know if I would get a, a proper answer, but at least I'm sure. What was he, his, do you remember his name? No. <laughs> what do he look like? What do he look like? I got to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> don't tell uh, me he was, so, not, he was nondescript. He was nondescript, uh, soft spoken. So, so. <laughs> as I said, not he was so he was so invisible, and he he didn't talk no, to anybody, yeah. and that was the only question he had on the on the whole evening. So uh, he was kind of weird, but much later, years later, it was clear to me <laughs> that his only question was uh, related to the Rosenholz files because he had to do with this operation. Yeah, yeah. Pity. I'll just share a tidbit. I found something out that when the when the walls when the files were. Um, You probably know about it yourself, but when, I mean, in December, where they started tearing, tearing through Nunnenbergstrasse and throwing, throwing files out the windows, and that was on TV, apparently um, George Bush was president, and he called up CIA headquarters. He said, um, they're throwing what appear to be <laughs> Stasi papers out of the windows. Can you guys go over there and get some <laughs> to see what they say? So that was like an official order from the president after watching TV. It's like, get over there and start scarfing some of those up. Well, sometimes they were hiring German hands uh, to do business because um, someone I know pretty good uh, was buying um, military equipment after the 
fall of the wall in the Eastern Bloc, and and he he received the money, <laughs> he received the money from the German government, and he handed it over to the Americans, uh, to the CIA directly. Yeah? And uh, yeah, so at, at, at some point, uh, the CIA just needed a third person. Oh, is this the missile thing? Was this the SS twenty one? No, it was. It it would fit. It it would fit in the in the back of a car. Uh, so he had it in okay. his home. Plutonium portable <laughs> atomic weapon. <laughs> but uh, that's a, a good hint uh, that sometimes uh, it's better if uh, a guy from West Germany is buying uh, that stuff and then hand it over yeah. uh, to someone in the United States. So then that uh, Americans went over waving, waving with dollars and maybe they wouldn't get it. Yeah, true. So maybe the same, same with the uh, Stasi files. Maybe um, they used third persons, um, and then at the end, it ended up uh, on the on the CIA desk where it was all planned. There's a German there's a German movie where they kind of postulated that because apparently some of the files they gave back to the Germans were missing, like I don't know the letter S right. or something, right? So there's a German movie that came out about five or six years ago, I think, where they, I mean, it just sort of postulated what why that could have happened and sort of based in some fact, some fiction, but it was mostly that also involved the, the Russians doing the exchange. But nevertheless, to, to be honest, that was a, a, an incredible success. You know, right. The, the fact that the, the Americans were able to get those files was an incredible success, maybe top three, top five, whatever. So to have the, the, the names and the biographies and every on every person who worked for the Stasi, and not only in in West Berlin and not only in Germany, I think that uh, that went international. And that, that's you know that that's more than gold. That's uh, that's incredible success. Yeah. Um, oh, you also mentioned in your book this guy named James Atwood. Now, if anybody wants to disappear down a wormhole, you say that James Atwood might have brokered something with the Russians. <laughs> I mean, he was supposedly an American counterintelligence guy, but he was also involved in the Iran Contra. And then he had this bizarre collection of German um, daggers from the Middle Ages. <laughs> you know, he was uh, he was just involved in. It was one of these characters. You, you it looks like somebody invented him for a movie, yeah. right? <laughs> Well, you just said someone invented him, and in in our our foreword of the first edition, uh, I think uh, think the last sentence is, uh, and here our book is the proof for the Mark Twain uh, quote that uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Right, <laughs> and and it is. You know, if John Le Carré was sitting at his desk and inventing such a story, you would say, "Oh, that's of what kind of a science fiction story." Uh, but but indeed, there are a couple of a uh, couple of things you could hardly believe that this really happened, and that the characters you were mentioned are usually very very weird. Uh, I, I I called just uh, mentioned Yildirim, the Turkish master, but also uh, James Carney is a, is a very uh, interesting, but at the same time very weird character. Yeah. And and you have all those characters where you said, well, if you were a, a scriptwriter and you would invent those people, nobody would believe you. No? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a bit too much. You know? <laughs> like Carney, like I don't know, like he didn't, wouldn't take any money. Like what is? I don't understand. Well, that was interesting. I, they found him. He he got a job. 
I remember hearing he got a job drive as an S as well. He worked for the Stasi ultimately in the end, but he was also working as an S bond driver. Yes, and that's that's a point. That's the time when uh, that uh, after unification he was working as an S bond driver, and that's uh, the time when uh, the Americans uh, kidnapped him, uh, literally, literally kidnapped him on the street, and flew him out over Tempelhof without uh, telling uh, the German government. You know, at the time after unification, all East Germans become Germans. Right. So at the time, regardless if they were former Americans or whatsoever, but at the time he was a German citizen and, you know, kidnapping a German citizen in Berlin on the street and flying him out without telling the government is also a very interesting episode. Yeah. Remanding him to a black site at Tempelhof for interrogation <laughs> and then and then yeah. flying him elsewhere. Yeah. Is he still alive, Carney? He is. He is. He's living in Ohio. You kind of finish off with uh, with the Rosenholz files, but I got a feeling there's a little more to be written about that. I mean, the, the guy that did ask you that question at at, um, at Langley, uh, what was your answer? And and have there been consequences or ripples that you've noticed since the? No, at the time I was not very much uh, into the subject, but I know only that uh, occasionally in Germany. People ask uh, why, after so many years, they, uh, the German government still has not the complete file back. It, it came, as you mentioned, it came back then, uh, but obviously uh, things were missing in there, which is also interesting because we, you know, we are we are Verbündeter, we are an ally. <laughs> yeah. As I said, for uh, the American intelligence uh, to get. Their hands on the files was an incredible success. Uh, I, I couldn't, I would top rank it, honestly. That's uh, incredible how, how they get it. And the fact that they get it is incredible. It's, it's fair that they were working on them uh, and didn't get them back, didn't hand them back for a couple of years. But uh, it was not a big subject in Germany. So it's still a bit of a sore point. Yeah, for good reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we should probably end right there on a <laughs> on a good downer, something that's uh, something that's still left a little bit open. I, I've just finished a documentary about Dean Reed. Um, oh, good. Uh, we'll, I'll try. I'll try to get that to you as soon as we can. That was that was interesting. And in, in like the research, I got to read through his entire, pretty much his State Department file and also his entire Stasi file. Good. That was a pretty interesting experience. One thing. I, one thing that struck me about it was how thorough the investigation was into his murder from the that the Volkspolizei did. I mean, you read it and it wasn't like it didn't feel like there was anything. The only thing that was really covered up was his suicide note at the time. Mm -hmm. They didn't reveal that to the family and they didn't reveal it to the public. So as a result, there was a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, was the Stasi involved? How could he just disappear like this? But um Yeah, have you ever done an exhibit of Dean Reed at the museum? The only thing uh, we had a connection to that is uh, we had a, an, uh, an evening uh, on a book uh, that was dealing with defectors. So military personnel that went from West Berlin to East Berlin to stay there. And um, the, the, the missions, the British, American and French missions uh, had the job. Uh, they, they had cards uh, with them. I've seen those original cards in the National Archive in, in, uh, in Kew in London. Uh, with their photos and their real names, and they were actually not searching those guys, but uh, just in case <laughs> they would pop into a guy that looks like the one they were looking for, uh, they should uh, put him in the car and bring him back again. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, the guy who uh, wrote the book about those uh, defectors said that's basically uh, two reasons why people defect from west to east. Uh, one reason is uh, financial or uh, criminal problems. Uh, and the other is love. So these are the main two reasons why people defect from west to east. And then that's true. I basically uh, know more love stories than uh, um, criminal stories. But indeed, especially uh, British and American soldiers who, who who did something wrong or were afraid of uh, going to prison, they they uh, defected into uh, into East just uh, to get away uh, with uh, the crime they did. But, uh, on the other hand, you have a couple of uh, West Germans and West Berliners who um, went through the East on purpose because their love was living there and uh, she didn't want to come to the West or she couldn't. So the West German or West Berlin guy had uh, to go into the East. Mm -hmm. And some of them are married today and um, yeah, celebrated the German unification. Uh, quite touchy stories, yeah. So just to wrap up, I mean, where is the Allied Museum now? Are you on Clay LA or Templehof? I haven't been keeping ah, track. Yeah, we are still at Clay LA. <laughs> okay, still at the outpost? Yeah. Ah, still at the outpost. That's, That's right. where I used to go to watch movies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and the Nicholson Library, yeah. We we have uh, two buildings. The one is the former uh, cinema outpost theater, and the other is uh, Major Nicholson Library, named after uh, Major Nicholson. It was shot uh, in uh, 85 uh, in Ludwigslust in East Germany. And uh, yes, it's still uh, the place uh, for our museum, but uh, we are aiming to move the museum to Temple of but we have a new government now and we need a lot of money. So we'll have to see how that all develops. I mean, do you work with the, the Stasi Museum at all? Well, I've been uh, at the Stasi Museum for research uh, last year, and but we do not, uh, we do not coordinate or plan uh, exhibitions together. Yeah, uh, that's not the case. What about the Karlsruhe? Is that the Karlsruhe Museum? Is that still open? The Russian one? Oh yeah, it is. Uh, I just we had a meeting today, and we will do an exhibition together with Karlshorst and uh, the uh, Air Force Museum in Gatow, mm -hmm. uh, and that will be on the Berlin Airlift. And we have the 75th anniversary of the Berlin Airlift in 2023, 2024, and we are doing a big exhibition in Tempelhof. Uh, outside exhibition in Templehof. And oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, I'd like to see that. That's next year? The exhibition at Templehof? No, no, two, uh, summer 2003, and it will stand for 11 months until uh, the 12th of May 2024. So during the period of the, the whole 11 months that the airlift was on. Anyway, Baron, it's always good to talk to you, man. Thanks for being on the live drop again and catching up. Well, Mark, thank you for inviting All the best, and we'll stay in contact. All the best, Let's. That was my guest, Bernd von Koska. He's the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin, co-author of City of Spies, along with Sven Felix Kellerhoff. City of Spies is available now in English, uh, wherever you get your books. Um, I've really enjoyed putting together these last episodes this year. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break over the summer, and I hope to bring some interesting conversations back for you uh, later on in the year. End of transmission. Transmission.